Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the glories of what we just sang. We thank you so much for the expectation that that builds into our own minds and hearts and lives. We thank you, Lord, that it is the Lord of glory and that he is crowned with many, many crowns. He is deserving and worthy of all of our praise, all of our adoration, all of our devotion, all of our sacrifice, all of our our zeal, of our service, of our pouring ourselves out unto Him, the great Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the Lamb upon His throne. We ask now, Lord, that You would bless us with a a particular devotion to the King of Kings as we consider some basic and rudimentary elements of what is a true church and what it is that you expect us to do and to be for your great namesake. Fill us now, Lord, with wisdom and discernment, with understanding. Give us zeal for application and obedience. Lord, we confess before you that we are devoid of any merit of our own. We confess that left to ourselves, O God, all we have is demerit. Left to ourselves, all we have, Lord, is alienation and separation from all that is good in Christ Jesus. And so we thank you for bringing us near by the blood of the Lamb. We pray, Father, as a church that you would draw us near to yourself and that in turn that would cause us to draw ourselves near to each other and that how we reflect the corporate life of the church would be a clear indication of how we reflect our own communion with you. Bless our time, Lord. Open up your word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And as you are being seated, um, I just want to make a quick announcement, uh, add to our announcements and just Once again, reiterate the the Emmaus Conference is upon us. Make sure that if you have not registered that you do that as quick as possible so that we don't hold it over you, uh, but that you would participate in that. And please, let me just extend this invitation to all of you. Just come. If you can't afford it, come. Somebody will afford it for you. Uh, I just don't want anyone in our church to miss out on the teaching that we're going to receive, particularly from... Pastors uh, Joseph Urban and and um, our brother Stephen Yule. Uh, I just remember the great blessing uh, that that Yule was last year, and just the imprint that his messages left on our church and on our hearts. And I know that we are going to be doubly blessed. I've already talked to him about his sermon content, and I know it's going to be really, really rich. So please uh, come to that. Make sure you attend that. And also, just to clarify, if you are not uh, signing up and buying a ticket for Saturday, uh, that doesn't mean that you are not coming to church on Sunday, okay? It uh, doesn't matter. You're still coming to church. Uh, so just uh, be aware of that. You are absolutely expected to come, even if you don't register for the conference on Sunday uh, for worship. But I trust that you will come. It's going to be a great time, so make sure you make it out to that and uh, with that, why don't we stand one last time as a church together and open our books, or open our Bibles to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, I'm taking a little bit of a breather since next week I will not be in the pulpit because I will be preparing for the Emmaus Conference. I thought I would take this opportunity and teach on something uh, that I think is necessary, needful, and hopefully will be encouraging and edifying for our church. Acts chapter 2. Um, Beginning in verse 37, we're going to go down to verse 42, and I'm going to um, really emphasize and really look at today, particularly verse 42. But just for context's sake, I thought we would read this glorious account of the Spirit's work in the early church. Verse 37 begins and says this, this is what the Word of God says. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the name of of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received His word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now this is what I really want to emphasize for our church. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. You may be seated. I was drawn on this subject of the church uh, just because um, things that had been stirring in my heart as a result of just various things that had come to play in our church. Um, a couple of months ago, we had some visitors, you remember, and I don't want to make a big deal out of this, but folks that were coming to our church and insisting that our church was not doing church rightly. We had some visitors outside for a few weeks, and that stirred a lot of conversation in our church, because part of what they were suggesting is that unless we engage in kind of ministry they were engaged in, we were not doing what a biblical church was supposed to do. And so that kind of drew drew out a conversation of what is a biblical church supposed to do? What does a biblical church look like? What are some of the rudimentary aspects of the church? And I thought, okay, perfect. So let's revisit one of the most basic rudimentary passages of Scripture on what is a true church and what is a pure church look like and what does life consist of in that church. And so I thought it couldn't get more basic than the outline that we have right here in Acts 2.42 for what I am calling a biblical paradigm for a pure church. A biblical paradigm for a pure church. Now, of course, if it is a pure church, it has to be a true church. And it is a true church. And the reason why we know that is because, as you see in verse 41, it says, those that had received His Word. That is to say that they received the Word of the Apostle Peter. And in turn, obviously, they received the Word of the Apostles. I remind you that this is a characteristic of a true church. Let me just read to you, for example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. This is what it says of a true church. Paul says, For this reason we constantly give thanks to God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And then listen to this. This is 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 which also performs its work in you who believe. What is Acts 2.42 all about? It is about the Word of God being received and the Word of God being, or the Word of God performing a work in the people that receive it. That's what Acts 2.42 is displaying for us. They were, those who receive the Word of God for what it is, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine and to fellowship, breaking of bread, and of prayer. So this is Luke's way of telling us some key rudimentary elements of a true church, of a primitive church, true enough, but of a pure church anyway. And that's really important for us because... When it boils down to what is a church supposed to do? What is the objective of a church? What is the mission of the church? What should be the vision of the church? Uh, What we're going to find is that these elements are absolutely central and crucial to a biblical church. And I'll tell you, they're so basic that sometimes they go overlooked. And so I want to emphasize those four things. One of the reasons why I picked this passage, because it's so simple. (laughs) Um, you know, pastors want to preach three, four points. Well, I got my three, four points right here. It's teaching, it's fellowship, it's breaking of bread, and it's prayer. It can't get any more simple than that, right? You would think that we do this really easy, right? You would think that we have this mastered, right? You would think that we are devoted to this, right? You would think that this is just a great assumption for every believer, right? 
I don't know why it is, but sometimes the easiest and most basic things about Christian theology are sometimes those things that are the most easily neglected. For example, I want to emphasize four aspects of this, and I'm going to title them in a certain way, but God's paradigm for a pure church includes the following things. Number one, there must be or what we can call growing in theology. And, and, and let me begin as, as we think about growing in theology because it says they were continually devoted to what? To the apostles' teaching or the word is doctrine, right? To doctrine. But let me just say a couple of preliminary things, a couple of preliminary ideas here. Notice the word that Luke chose to use here. They were continually devoting themselves. That that phrase, continually devoting, really comes from one Greek participle. The, the, it is pros kartereo. It's actually a compound word from the word kateros, which literally means strength or steadfastness. So the compound preposition pros, pros kartereo, literally means towards the steadfastness. Towards the steadfastness of what? Well, towards the steadfastness of these things that he's going to list here. And it begins with growing in theology. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a commentary on the book of Acts called Authentic Christianity. And he has one sermon entitled Separation. So that before he even begins the process of delving into devoted to the apostles' doctrine, the very first sermon he constructs is a sermon called Separation. And the reason he does that is because of verse 40. As the apostles are, in a sense, summarizing their entire gospel call, this is what he's calling them to. Be saved from. You see that? Be saved from this perverse generation. Where does devotion to apostolic theology begin? It begins by a willful separation from the world, a breaking off. Lloyd-Jones says that this led to their conversion and what he calls to a profound change of mind, heart, and will. Romans chapter 6, verse 17, speaks about this separation. And then it speaks about this conformity, kind of a parallel really idea to what we have here in Acts. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says, we thank, we, uh, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, see that's your life in the perverse generation that the apostles are calling you out of, right? You were slaves of sin. Watch this. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching. There's the didaskalos. There's the doctrine. To the form of teaching to which you were committed. Now that form, or the word there, tupas, is a pattern of teaching. What is the pattern of teaching? It's the apostles' doctrine. It's the apostles' teaching, as it says here. Now, what's really interesting about Acts 2.42, I don't know if you know this. You don't see it in the English very well, but in the Greek text, it's, the construction is actually very, very uh, intentional. Small verse, not a whole lot of real estate here, right? But Luke does something that's real specific in this verse. He gives a definite article not just to teaching, not just to the breaking of bread, but guess what? There is an articular construction, meaning there's a definite article to teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. So literally, if we were translating the Greek, it would literally be this. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Because prayers in the plural. Very interesting. We'll dive a little bit further into that. Beginning with the teaching, though. A pure church is a church that's growing theologically. This is what I mean by churches overlooking the basics. I mean, so many churches today exist for the purpose of growing, and you guess what I'm about to say, numerically. 
It's all about growing numerically. It's all about growing the numbers, filling the pews, growing the tithing, growing the offering, the giving. Now we have online giving. It's just so simple. Just slide the credit card. I mean, you can use PayPal. The emphasis is not on growing the knowledge of the members, the believers in the pew, but simply about growing the believers. This is a marketeering, this is a consumer-driven ideology that has that has creeped its way into the contemporary evangelical church and the church at large. And it really is what I like to call pastoral idolatry. (laughs) Pastors suffer from this. I suffer from it. I have to guard my heart from it. God, who do you want me to pastor? 20 people? 200 people? 2,000 people? Let it be that God decides that. But for me, my job is not... Hey, how many people you got this Sunday? That's not my job. My preoccupation, I would say my obsession, should be who am I teaching today? What am I teaching today? Uh, Are the people growing, learning? Is their knowledge expanding? And I can tell you testimony after testimony, I don't want to puff anybody up in this room, so I won't use the name. But I can tell you testimony after testimony of brother and sister after brother and sister that I have listened to over the course of just a few years whose terminology is changing. Their words are changing. Their knowledge is changing. They're using words like exegetical and redemptive and even redemptive historical and biblical theology. And I'm thinking, wow, that's not how that person was talking when they first got here. And of course, this is not to gloat over our own, you know, efforts. I'm not, I'm not boasting here, but in a sense I am. I'm boasting in what God is doing when we simply follow the basic Sunday school story outline of Acts 2.42. Constantly devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to growing in theology. So much can be said about this. We can see this in a number of ways in terms of what does this mean? How do we understand this? How do we, how do we understand the progress of, 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 of teaching in the church? And even when Luke wrote this and when this happened, what was it referring to? Well, you remember organically going back to the teaching of Jesus. We understand that this teaching is ultimately rooted in Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 to 20, which is the Great Commission. It is there, after all, that the Lord told the apostles, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is what we see right before verse 42. And then it says, teach Teaching them. Teaching them what? Teaching them to become intellectual giants. No, 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 no. It's not giants of intellect. It's of IQ. It's giants of application. Teaching them to observe. You see that there? It's not just about filling your head with head knowledge. It's about filling your life with holy living. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, guess what? Jesus taught them quite a bit. It's ex- it's extensive. It's um it's comprehensive. Uh, it's weighty. It's depth. It's deep. It's profound. The teaching of Jesus is is is, is prolific, and that's what they wanted to teach. Furthermore. It wasn't that the apostles were teaching something new. It wasn't that they were teaching something novel, some doctrine that came to them, ex nihilo. It has a root, a foundation, and is founded in all of God's revelation. So just let me just give you one example of the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching, according to the apostles in the book of Acts, what they saw that they were teaching themselves. Acts 26, verse 22. The Apostle Paul couldn't say it any clearer. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day, testifying both to the small and the great, standing, stating nothing, listen to it, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said con, uh, that was going to take place. Verse 23, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light to both the Jewish people and the Gentiles. Christ, Christ, Christ. A true church has Christ at the center. And that is central to everything that we teach. 
Ultimately, apostolic theology is Christological. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 4, uh, the apostle Paul, again, he summarizes his message to the Corinthians by saying, for I deliver to you as I, as a first importance what I also received. You see that there's this, that there's this tradition. There's this, there's, there's, uh, this, uh, 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 rep- repetition. There's this multiplication. I'm looking for the word actually. But there's a succession of theology that's going on here. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. What are the apostles teaching? What was a According to the scriptures, the scriptures and Christ is at the center of it all. In second John verse nine, John made it very clear as to the importance of Christ and the doctrine of Christ. Listen to what he says. If anyone goes too far and does not abide or remain in the doctrine of Christ, he does not have God. Isn't that amazing? A test of orthodoxy was Christological. At least one of those tests. Sound doctrine, therefore, is what accurately expounds the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the crux of the apostolic message. Now, let me read to you conversely. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. That's why apostle, uh, the Apostle Paul here is going to go on again to say, if you deviate from Christ, you deviate from sound doctrine. If anyone, this is 1 Timothy 6.3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. Wow, that doesn't sound too politically correct, Paul. But it's right. It's true. It is a test of evangelicalism. It determines whether or not you're orthodox, whether or not you're sound. You go beyond what Scripture teaches on the doctrine of Christ, His person, His work. The reason this is so is because of that very fact. If you reject sound doctrine, then you deny the clarity of Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture, reject the idea that God has made Himself known to pervert the way of righteousness. As Peter says, to twist the Scriptures to your own destruction. The attempt to try to conceal God. But this is what the church, a true church, is to be concerned with. It's to be concerned with growing theologically, growing doctrinally. After all, 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15. The church itself is a refuge of truth. But think about that. A lot of people go to the church for what? They go to the church for, uh, because they're lonely. They go to the church because many churches, I mean, let's be honest, they operate like a singles network, like a dating club, like a network for business owners. I mean, it's just true. Uh, the, the, the church serves a, a function above everything to meet people's felt needs. And pastors are not ashamed of that. Come to church, you'll have a better marriage, better finances, better health, better wealth, better prosperity, right? We know the script. But fundamentally, the church is a refuge of truth. How many people come to church primarily because they're saying, I want truth? 1 Timothy 3.15, I think our church is filled with people like that, actually. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15, In case I'm delayed, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And then look at this great grand description of the church, the pillar and the buttress or the support of the truth. This is what's uppermost in the mind of the Apostle Paul, that the church is to be the pillar of truth. That's what the church is supposed to be. And that truth is first and foremost propagated in the house of God, God's people. Turn with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, and I'm going to have you turn to Colossians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 tells us exactly what the church looks like in continuation with Acts 2.42 and what we should be doing. Folks, let me say this. 
that the church is to be a micro-level seminary. Uh, it's a training ground. It is a place you come to get educated theologically. Um, look at what Paul says here. You know this text. Ephesians 4.11, he gave some apostles, he gave some prophets, he gave some evangelists, he gave some pastors and teachers, and then this great all-defining purpose clause, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. I am not doing my job. This is what Paul's saying. I am not doing my job. In other words, if you are not able to fulfill the work of ministry yourself because you have been so equipped, so educated, so well-rounded, so theologically grounded that you are able now to fulfill the work of the ministry. It's on the onus is on you. It's not the pastor does everything. Is the pastor preaches and teaches and labors for what purpose? So that every one of you will be competent for ministry purposes. For evangelism, for missions, for teaching, for training others, for discipling, for taking someone out for a cup of coffee and pouring over the scriptures with them. Now turn to Colossians 1.25. This is the apostle's great aim. This is what it means to just immerse yourself in a life. Because remember what Acts says, continually devoted. It's, 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 it's a, it speaks of saturation. Constancy. Colossians chapter 1 verse 25. Paul says of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me on your behalf. Okay, sure enough. Paul was called. Paul was able. He was equipped. He was qualified. He's a good teacher. Greatest theologian of the early church. Fine. And then he goes on to say, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations but has now been made manifest to its saints to whom God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of His mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then verse 28 gives us the practical uh, execution of this. We proclaim Him. And in that proclamation, look at what Paul's aim is. He says, we proclaim, admonishing every man, teaching, there it is, didaskalos, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose, for this purpose, I labor, I strive according to His power which mightily works within me if we are honest. Many pastors have shirked this responsibility. Um, I, I'll never forget when we were going, years ago, when we were going through um, uh, Mounce's uh, uh, textbook on, the Greek, on Greek, on learning Greek, first year Greek. He gives the statistics of, of the Greek uh, success rate, if you would, Right, and he talks about how people, probably about eighty-five percent of the people that go through a class on Greek immediately forget it, <laughs> and then the rest of those people kind of struggle, and they kind of they, they don't ever it doesn't ever fully stick, and it's a very small percentage, like literally five percent of all the people that endeavor to learn Koine Greek that actually use it, and it's actually part of their lives, and the same is true for pastors. They go through seminary, they learn Greek, they learn a little Hebrew, right? And they get in the ministry, they get busy, their meetings, their administration, there's finances, there's problems, and guess what? In the middle of that, there goes your Greek participles, there goes your Greek paradigms, there goes your Greek vocabulary, and before you know it, you're, you're, you're solely relying on software to help you out. <laughs> It's just a testament that, 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 that things can come in and crowd out the Word of God. And good things, counseling, administrative responsibilities, um, missions, evangelism. All of these things, if we're not careful, can choke out the pastor's ability to make every man complete in Christ. 
Pastors ought to be obsessed with this because this is the purpose of the church, is to train you. Um, on a personal level, though, now let me turn this around because I'm beating up on pastors. Let me turn this around on you. On a personal level, brothers and sisters, we all bear the same responsibility to the Word of God. You bear as much responsibility to hear the Word, to listen to the Word, to sit under the Word, to learn the Word, to memorize the Word, to be people of the Word. As Paul or Peter says in 1 Peter chapter uh, 2, he says, you earnestly desire the pure milk of the Word of God. Now let me ask you, how busy can you get in life? You may not be a pastor. You may not have meetings. You may not be counseling. You may not be involved in full-time ministry. But the soccer game, the work schedule, right? The leisurely time, television, entertainment, video games, family time. All of these things easily can become about things other than the Word of God. Am I saying don't do any of those things? No, I wouldn't be so legalistic. But I am saying... Be on guard because you live in a world that is very, very skilled at sucking your time away. And before you know it, you have very, very little time to devote to personal Bible study. Look at, uh, turn with me in your Bibles if you would. Second Peter chapter 3 verses 17 to 18. This is why the primitive church was so precious. It was basic. It was it was primitive, but it was very potent because they had a very they had a very basic childlike devotion to these things. This devotion, however, is also an obligation. This obligation is yours and mine. That's what I'm trying to stress here. Second Peter chapter three, beginning of verse seventeen. Uh, first, we see, in the sense, the negative aspect of this, and then the positive. In a negative sense, there is danger all around. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by error. What error? The error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. The people who showed up outside the walls of our church were unprincipled men. They were not submitted to authority. They were not in a local church. They were propagating this sort of ecclesiastical anarchy where you're not accountable to anybody, where you don't need a pastor, you don't need to belong, you don't need to be a member anywhere. You just do your own Christian thing. Uh, that's what's behind this term here, unprincipled. These are people that are unstable spiritually and then they try to influence others away from their own steadfastness. So what do we do positively? Look at verse 18. But grow. See, this is the emphasis in Scripture. Trajectory. You'll never arrive, but you should never stop growing. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So it's two things. Grow in grace and grow in knowledge. Those are inseparable. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my words. There is no way to have to, to, to claim the grace of God when you are not at the same time growing in the knowledge of God. If you genuinely are changed by the grace of God, you will be affected by the knowledge of God. There is no way to divorce the two. If you begin to separate these things, I can promise you one thing. If you begin to separate the mind and the heart in the Christian life, what will result is a disastrous imbalance in your life. You will become imbalanced. You will be stunted in your growth. And you will not, as he goes on to say here, in one sense, you will not be able to protect yourself and to be on guard from this dangerous air that's all around us, everywhere. It's the air that we breathe. It's the air that we breathe. Now, I had a very hard choice to make this week. Do I... Stop there and just keep going on the, the, on the theology point because I could have taken the whole time and just did that. Or, and then risk you getting mad at me for doing one word. I mean, one verse, you know, you're used to that, but one phrase, that's it. Okay, so I decided to keep going. 
As much as I would love to keep going in that vein of thought to show you your need for the Word of God, to show you your need for doctrine, for theology. It's as simple as this, brothers and sisters. J.I. Packer put out a book where he talks about 18 words, 18 words that you must know as a Christian and you must be able to define. You need to know what propitiation is, what justification is, what sanctification is. You need to know what words like union with Christ mean. You need to know what ecclesiology is, what soteriology is. You need to know these terms. And you need to continue to educate yourself until you have a good handle on these terms. They are our life. You remember what God told Moses. Moses, this word is not futile. He says, Moses, this word, his words that he was giving to them, these words are not trifle for you. Meaning it's not a, this is not just a vain, whimsical, fickle thing I'm giving you. He said, Moses, These words are your life. Is that how we look at the Word of God? Is that how we look at theology? These words are my life. I know that many of you believe that and you live like it and you act. Am I saying every one of you has to be a theologian? All of you need to run out of here and learn Greek and Hebrew. Although I would say that would be to your own everlasting joy, but I know you're not going to do that. But but what I'm saying is at whatever level you are at, because I know everyone in here is at a different level theologically, but what at whatever level you are at, you must engage in Bible study. You have to be as disciplined as me. Yes, I'm saying you need to be as disciplined as me where you must at some point have a time where you get away from everything. Turn off the gadgets, the bings, the dings, the rings, the vibration on the desk. Stop everything, right? Somebody's texting you. Put the whole world on hold. No, it's there comes a time where you need to really focus your energy and and your powers <laughs> against uh, against all of that, and you need to focus on the Word of God. Okay, like I said, I could preach a whole sermon here. But there are other aspects that make up a true church. The next one is this, committing to community. Because it also says that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Remember I said it's articular, has the definite article, the fellowship. So in other words, what's in view here is definitely our commitment to the formal uh, uh, gathering of the church, the ecclesia. And here... Hebrews chapter 10 is absolutely critical. So turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 24, just to show us the absolute um, importance of fellowship, right? And this you know, because I just preached it, but you know this. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You see the level of commitment in fellowship? It's not just about showing up. It's not just about making an appearance. When it says consider how to stimulate one another, a couple of very practical things are assumed here. Number one, you love that person enough to get involved. You love that person enough to stimulate them. And... You, if you are in fellowship in a local church, you are humble enough to receive stimulation. You don't get offended when people come up to you and begin to prod you spiritually. Hey, how are you doing, brother? How are things going? What are you studying in the Word of God today? What, what, what have you been studying lately? How's your prayer life? How's your soul? Oh, well, I'm just, you know, I'm kind of a private person. I don't really open up like that, you know. Oh, we might not say that, but we have our own little manipulative ways to get out of that, you know, and scurry along. Don't worry, God's got your number. He's got all of our numbers. You can hide from people, but you can't hide from God. You can lie to the elders, you can't lie to God. You can make it through the membership process and and, and slip your way through, but God ultimately will reveal it. I've seen it so many times. And it's so sad. Because the Bible says we ought to be children of the light. Come into the light. We ought to be willing to expose ourselves to the fellowship of the church, to receive from the ministry of the church. People got to be in your 
business. <laughs> Don't forget that all fellowship, after all, is Christ-likeness. Now turn with me. If oh, Let me finish verse 25 before I forget. It says here, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. There's the negative aspect. It's, it's something that is to be rejected. The habit of some was not to assemble, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. And this is what I'm saying, is that fellowship is really um, a barometer of where we are with God because our willingness or lack thereof is actually, if you would, it's kind of like a, a stethoscope of our communion with God. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. I'm hitting all the basic passages today, if you haven't noticed. All the big ones. They're familiar, but they're, they're potent. Philippians chapter 2. And what I want you to do is look with me at verse 5. And then we'll work our way backwards because this is actually what has transpired. In verses 1 through 4, what has actually transpired is that verse 5 has been in operation. What is verse 5? This. Have this attitude, or literally the word here is mind. Have the, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what he's saying is, have the mind of Christ. Now what does the mind of Christ look like in the church in terms of fellowship and community? Verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection or compassion, in other words, what is he saying? Is there any evidence of the saving work of Jesus Christ in your life? Are there any, are there any aspects of salvation and the reality of salvation in your life? Is there anything of genuine conversion? Because this all comes from genuine conversion. Encouragement in Christ, consolation of love, fellowship in the Spirit, affection, compassion. All of that is a fruit of regeneration. If there is any of that, and Paul is saying, of course there's got to be some of that. If you're a believer, and if you're a believer, then verse 2 says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And this is really why, one of the reasons why I really wanted to go to Acts 2.42 and talk about this because I knew that I would get to the unity of the church, which is so important for us. That the members of the church are to strive for this unity, look for this unity, not look for things that we differ on. It's just, it is such a disposition difference. Some people go to a church and their disposition, their natural bent is to find the stuff I don't like, find the stuff I disagree with, and highlight that. Instead of, as Paul is encouraging us to do here, can you find any encouragement in Christ? Can you find any consolation of love? Can you find any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection or compassion? If so, guess what? You have the ability, therefore, to be of the same mind, one love, one Spirit, one purpose. How are you going to do that? Well, it's going to take a really big choice on our part. Are we going to be selfish or are we going to be selfless? Don't forget where this is all going. What was the mind of Christ? Selfish or selfless? You answer that. He became a servant. He emptied himself. He condescended. He came down. He said, no rights. I lay it all aside. Right? He took on the form of a what? Doulos. A slave. He came down in the form of sinful humanity. He humbled Himself to the point of death. He became obedient, even the death of the cross. Look at the cross if you're struggling with unity, with unity in the church. Look at the cross if you're struggling with fellowship in the church. Look at the cross if you're struggling with, I can't connect with anybody. And then look at your brother or your sister at the foot of the cross. 
and ask yourself, how can I not love them? How can I not give myself to them? How can I not be of one mind, one heart, one spirit, one purpose with them? It is all about the cross. Fellowship is cruciform. It is cross-centered. It's all about Christ. And that's why we're able to do it. It's not because every person in here has so much in common. Come on, let's be honest. Take away Christ. You ain't hanging out with me. Take away Christ. You're not hanging out with the person next to you. Christ is what brings us together in what Paul calls the bond of peace. There is a covenant bond between us because we are united in a covenant bond with Christ. It's not just about hanging out with one another, but look at the formal, probably what I would argue for, the formal dimension that he's going to go here. You see the next thing? The breaking of bread. What I call not just... Not just growing in theology, not just committing to community, but I would say observing the liturgy. And I'm using the word liturgy broadly in the sense of worship. So what was the breaking of bread? Well, it is pretty conclusive. All the commentators agree. When Acts says the breaking of the bread, that's exactly what it says. Te classe two are two, the breaking of the bread. What is probably in view here is an early reference to the Lord's Supper. And so the church, especially the primitive early church that often joined a real meal with the Lord's Supper, they did this constantly. And we all heard Pastor Chris's exhortation to be ready for the Lord's Supper in our own church, and amen to that. Think about the glory of the Lord's Supper. Now, baptism is the other ordinance of the church, correct? you got baptism, Lord's Supper. God in His wisdom only gave us two precious ordinances for the church. We don't have all the ceremonies of Israel. Those are fulfilled in Christ. He gives us two new rituals, baptism Lord's Supper. Well, baptism you do at conversion. You do as a first step of obedience, as you are initially beginning your walk with God and joining the church. But the Lord's Supper is something, it is a means of grace that has an iterative function in your life, meaning it is constantly happening throughout the, throughout the life of the Christian. And think about the wisdom that God did this for. What is the Lord's Supper about? The Lord's Supper is our corporate participation in the celebration of the broken body and of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It is such a powerful ordinance. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 so that you can see this. It is such a powerful ordinance that it holds in it the power of life and death. Literally. And don't ask me to give you examples today of this. I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says here. Right? That when you abuse, misuse, have a disregard and do not regard the body of the Lord properly, which means you think of the Lord's Supper like it's a meal, like any other meal. And we know they were doing that in the context in chapter 11 because verse 17 and following, the Apostle Paul is rebuking them because in the context of the Lord's Supper and in the context of the fellowship meal that they were taking with it, they were abusing it. They were using it so they can get a free a free meal. That's really what they wanted. Oh, they're giving out food? Great, let's go. And you miss the whole reason why you're participating of this ordinance. It was a disregarding of the body and the blood. And he says, for this reason, verse 30, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Wow, that is a, that is a serious passage of Scripture saying, for those who had disregard for the Lord's Supper, some of them... Uh, fell under sickness. Some of them were weak. There was maybe spiritually weak. And even some died. And uh, I just think of the what Paul says, the kindness and the severity of the Lord 
Um, but this is how serious the ordinance of the Lord's Supper is. And that's why we as a, as a church, we have to take great care what we do with the Lord's Supper. Knowing the weight of it. The weight of the Lord's Supper. Knowing that our hearts have to be right with God. God has the power here to discipline our hearts. Look at verse 32. We know that when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Wow. So should you fall under some weakness or illness because of a misuse of the Lord's Supper, that's actually a demonstration of the kindness of God. Wow. It is a reminder of our covenant privileges and of our duties before God. It's what it is. It's also a celebration to all those who approach the Lord's table in purity because verse 24 tells us that this is His body, this is His blood, and it's to be done in remembrance of Him and that we are to examine ourselves so we don't partake of it in an unworthy manner. The Lord's Supper is a gracious ordinance. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, it really is a time for us to go inward and reflect and meditate and examine our own hearts to see where are we at with the Lord. Okay, last point. They weren't just observing the liturgy. They were also devoted to spirituality. Look at the text again. It says they were not only continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, not only were they devoting themselves to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, but lastly, The literal translation is to the prayers, to the prayers. Needless to say, in the book of Acts, prayer is everywhere. You see it all over the book of Acts. Prayer is mentioned in chapter 1 when they had to choose a replacement for Judas. Prayer is mentioned in chapter 6 when they chose deacons. Prayer, and this is formal, serious time of prayer. Prayer was also sought when they were appointing elders in the church, Acts 14. Prayer was also uh, utilized when they were dispatching missionaries, Paul and Barnabas. Prayer for urgent needs like healing, chapter 9, chapter 28. Prayer was also uh, uh, there for urgent needs like when Peter was in prison. The church was in prayer. Time and again, what do you see? The people devoted to prayer, devoted to prayer, devoted to prayer. And so, as with other rudimentary principles of the church, just like studying the Bible is such a simple, such a simple principle, how much more simple is prayer? (laughs) I was listening to a, uh, I was listening to a lecture by a pastor. He was addressing seminary students that were about to graduate out of seminary and go into the ministry. And he warned them after 20 years of ministry, he told them, be careful and be on your guard because one of the very first things that will go in your ministry is prayer. You will get so busy. The sermon has to be written. You have to teach. Meetings have to be had. Counseling has to happen. And somewhere in the shuffle of all of that, prayer can easily, easily be neglected. But what is prayer, brothers and sisters? Prayer is our communion with God. Prayer is where we bring our petitions before God. Prayer is where we go to God for help. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, that's the throne of grace where we go to receive help in time of need. When are we in time of need? All the time if you have eyes to see. Prayer. What are we praying for? What are you praying for today? I'm praying for the election of my daughter. I'm praying for the salvation of my daughter. That's a new burden of prayer on my heart. I'm praying that at the earliest age possible, this young sinner would come to repentance (laughs) and would put her faith in Jesus Christ, will abandon the world, (laughs) will forsake her ways, and trust in Jesus Christ at the earliest possible age. And so I will spend a lifetime praying over this precious little soul. And I will spend a lifetime trying to teach this little soul the ways of the Lord. Let me get started on that because you know I'll preach forever on that too. Um, Prayer is so important. So what I'm trying to emphasize, brothers and sisters, is that prayer in the church 
should be essential. It's, um, it's how we conduct warfare. Prayer forces us to acknowledge our dependency upon God. If we are prayerless, what we're telling God is we are independent. If we are prayerless, what we're telling God is we are not aware of our needs, spiritually speaking. If we are prayerless, what that means, what that could mean is you really don't care about the unsaved family members in your family, your neighbors, the people that you're trying to reach. But if you really genuinely believed that your loved ones are damned and on their way to hell, how much more would we intercede for them? It's not a guilt-driven thing. It's just a reality. It's a reality that no matter how hard I proclaim it, somehow it has this, 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 this way of just rolling off our back. Inconsequential. Biggest realities in the world. Prayer. When Peter was going astray, Jesus prayed. And if Jesus prays for Peter to be restored, then brothers and sisters, we have no right to abandon prayer. Our church should be marked by prayer. John Owen says, I know more about a theologian by the way that he prays than the way that he writes. Because that's when all the facades need to come down. That's when you're either going to be honest before God or you're not. Prayer is what we should be doing in our church for the purity of our church, for revival in our church. That's as controversial as I'm going to get. Can you pray for revival? Yes, pray for revival. Pray that God saves your family, saves your neighbors, uses our church to save the lost all around us. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, we have one short little life and then it's over. I mean, it's over. Why do I go to UNT every week to get yelled at and sped upon and, 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 and get mocked and made fun of? First of all, it doesn't really have a huge effect on me. But why do I do it? I do it because my life is like a blip on a screen. Blip. There it went. And what, what was it all about anyway, right? All of a sudden you'll look and you'll be in eternity and you'll look back on this life and it will be like it was a dream. And so, we must be eternally minded. Go back one more time, please, to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Because I want to emphasize this word, continually devoted. And just simply ask yourself, fathers, as you lead your homes, mothers, as you shepherd your children, families, as you order your homes, Ask yourself, in your home, are you continually devoted to these things? To be continually devoted, I will stress just a different aspect of this word because it also has the idea that a person is busying themselves with something. I like that. And and, and it's the lexical range of the Greek word. It literally means that you are busying yourself with this. In other words, it's preoccupation. What are you preoccupied with? Are you, are you preoccupied, preoccupied more with earthly, physical, mundane, temporal, material things? Or are you preoccupied first with spiritual, eternal, biblical, heavenly things? Right? I was thinking about this. If you're single and you want to get married, that's a big desire, right, when you're single? So when you're single and you want to get married, you are burning to get married because you don't want to be single anymore. And it weighs on your heart. And I know several precious, precious saints all over the place that are in this place. And I would say, pray more about your spiritual life Pray more about the kingdom of God. Pray more about growing in Christ. Pray more about the knowledge of God. Pray more about your own soul. And all of these things will be added to you. Don't get so preoccupied with, who am I going to marry? Oh no. Devote that to the Lord in prayer. See, I think the early church was such a powerful church because it was so simple. There was a primitive 
um, there was a primitive dimension to the early church that we have just lost today. We have lost in our technology, in our, you know, in our Bible software, and, you know, just how, you know, in our, in our Bible apps, you know, we're so busy with our technology and our entertainment and everything that we do. I just hope that you hear my heart today. What is a true church? A true church is a church that's devoted to these rudimentary things and that is busy doing these things, that is constant in these things, and that perseveres in these things. This is what's going to make your family strong. This is what's going to make your marriage strong. This is what's going to make your your walk strong. And this is what's going to make our church strong. Let me me pray for you. Father, Lord, again... We confess to you a lot of these simple, basic, rudimentary things. Lord, we neglect. We neglect them. And I, I for one, confess and repent openly before you that easy to neglect prayer. Easy to neglect getting really engaging in the Lord's Supper. Easy to neglect really having, not just hanging out with people in fellowship, but having spiritual fellowship. Fellowship that is spent talking and conversing about heavenly things. Not just the weather, sports. And Lord, I pray that you would give us this primitive heart. If some of us have left our first love, Call us back to return. If we've become so complicated in our walk with God that we don't even know what we should be doing day in and day out, help us to reprioritize our life. Help us to take stock. You see, what are we doing spiritually in our walk today? Bless your people. Protect our church. Build our church, Father. We want from you and from your hand the the, the type of prosperity that's going to build a pure church We don't care about a big church. We care about a pure church. And so we ask God, do this for your namesake and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.